Enterprise Management 360, your main source for tech news, analysis, podcasts, and videos for the enterprise. Welcome to the EM360 podcast, where we have a weekly conversation with people who are impacting the enterprise tech landscape. My name is Matt Harris, editor here at EM360, and your host on today's episode. Make sure you stay up to date with all of our latest episodes by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you go for your podcast needs. In today's episode, I'm joined by Ben Jenkins, Director of Cybersecurity at ThreatLocker, and we're going to be talking about how to stay ahead of the changing attack landscape using Zero Trust. Ben, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, happy to uh, happy to have you. Could you just go through a little bit about um, who you are and what you guys do at ThreatLocker? Yeah, sure. So um, my name is obviously Ben Jenkins. I'm our director of cybersecurity here at ThreatLocker. Um, very simply, I get to talk tech. Um, I help to train people on the threats that are out there, explain the the ever-changing cybersecurity landscape, um, show them how they can kind of better protect themselves and uh, hopefully try to slow down or, or stop the amount of attacks that are going on out there. Um, as for ThreatLocker, we are a zero-trust endpoint security company. Um, so we actually follow the zero-trust um, architecture, which I know we will be touching on a little bit later. Yeah, so so as we kind of mentioned in, in the intro, you know, there, there is a lot of attacks going on at the moment and the landscape of those are, are, are constantly changing. Um, ben, how, how are attacks happening these days? You know, what do they look like and how do they differ from, say, 10 years ago? Sure, yeah, I mean, at, attacks... 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, were very different to what we're seeing nowadays. If we think back to even 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the types of attacks we were seeing were not necessarily always monetarily driven. Um, more often than not, they were done by kind of rogue threat actors, um, hackers who wanted credibility to, to boast on hacking forums that they've gone ahead and hacked the FBI or... or MI5 or something on those lines. They've taken down the, the government website. Um, and a lot of it was actually then the, the kudos behind it. It was saying, you know, I, I am able to do this. Look at what I have done. And there's been a, a dramatic shift from that to the last 10 years, but realistically the last five years, where we've seen attacks have become less people want that credibility, less that it's they're bored and they just want something to fill up time. And it's definitely now down to money. So there's been a dramatic increase in cyber attacks that are linked to, say, extortion. Um, obviously, the, the key thing that everyone thinks about there is ransomware, you know, holding your data ransom until you have paid a, uh, a ransom fee. Now, we've, we've seen a, a huge increase, and it is increasing year on year for ransomware, and it will only, I, I believe, probably only get worse until we start implementing some true solutions to be able to stop it. But, I mean... You know, who, who is it that's causing these attacks? It's not always the people that you would expect. You know, we always think or we're always told that it's it's the rogue hacker who sat there in a uh, sat there in a hoodie with their hood up in front of a computer and in the dark and they're they're hacking using command line and all that kind of stuff, right? That's that's kind of where we've always thought uh, the hacker is, but it's realistically not. You know, we've seen a huge increase, especially over the last five to ten years, of cyber gangs, cyber criminals, um, groups that are essentially formed to be able to attack 
and to make money through these attacks. You know, we look at some some key ones, Darkseid, for example. Uh, they were the organization who were believed, believed, I'm inverting commas, hand comma thing here, to be behind the attack on the uh, Colonial Pipeline, which provides, I think, 45% of fuel to the whole of the East Coast of the US. They managed to actually ransomware a machine and had to shut down that pipeline. So, yeah, pretty terrifying. And that was one cyber gang that did that. Then you've got Conti, for example. Um, they're also known by, uh, I, I think if you Google Conti, their real name is Wizard Spider, which is a, a slightly odd name. No one in the news seems to uh, uh, recognize them as Wizard Spider because, I mean, you can't really say it with a straight face. Yep. So yep. We, we all say Conti. Essentially, uh, Conti have had some some major, major attacks uh, recently. So they've gone after the Irish Health Service. That was actually hit with the um, Conti malware. So taking down a whole, essentially, health division, which is obviously pretty insane. And then um, more recently, they actually, I believe it was, they started going after Costa Rica, like the literal country of Costa Rica. They started to shut down their government systems and infect them more and more with ransomware. Um, there were rumors at some point in time they were trying to overthrow the government of Costa Rica. So we've gone from uh, the way we always used to view these attacks is a, a guy in a basement who's just hacking for a bit of fun to now cyber gangs trying to overthrow governments. Mm. So it's 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 pretty interesting. But obviously it, it's not only these, these cyber gangs that we need to be wary of. It is everyday people like you and I. Yeah, we've seen a resurgence of um, ransomware as a service. Obviously, in IT, we like to talk about software as a service. It's that kind of pay monthly software piece. You don't have hardware you need to manage, etc. cetera. Uh, threat actors have cottoned onto this now, and now they're doing ransomware as a service. So you and I could log into the dark web. We could go to one of the shady websites, the marketplaces, to be able to purchase a piece of ransomware and then send it out to people, and then we would get paid. We wouldn't have had to code any of that, we wouldn't have had to create the ransomware. It's already there for us, and we get lovely portals to be able to manage it. Now, a lot of these threat actors will then get a 10 to 20% cut of however much money is made. So they've always got kind of very easy and secure ways to be able to make this money. Um, and we're seeing these attacks, while yes, they are with cyber gangs, it is still everyday people like you and I who could get hold of this kind of stuff. So I guess what you're saying is, you know, what's changed is the scope and maybe even the, you know, financial viability of the attacks um, almost, which is quite interesting. I, I think it's 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 totally changed. You know, we are in a very different landscape. I think we're in a very different um, security landscape, but also just for a personal level, we're very different to how we were 10, 20 years ago. Mm. And um, I think with that, cybersecurity has adapted and cyber threats and cyber attacks are adapting as well. Um, and I, I, I do expect that within the next five years, it's going to look completely different. Mm. Mm. And are the um, vulnerabilities on the defense side uh, changing along with this landscape? And, and if so, how are they? Uh, yes, I mean, we've seen a, a huge increase in vulnerabilities that are coming out with machines uh, or, or sorry, with software. So when we, when we look at these vulnerabilities that are out there, I think last year it was about 21,000 CVEs um, or, or vulnerabilities that were actually officially announced. Now, the, the key word there is officially. Uh, we do not obviously know how many were not announced and were mm. not found. 
Um, but 21,000 last year, and we are currently on track to overtake that this year. Uh, there's some really awesome graphs by MITRE. So if you if you just Google CVE, there's cve.mitre.org. They do some really awesome graphs that show the increase in um, vulnerabilities or cybersecurity vulnerabilities uh, year on year, and it is it's it's going up, and it is only going to to start getting worse. I mean, it, yeah, it, we, we can look at some of the previous vulnerabilities we've had. We had, um, I think it was Print Nightmare that was last year, allowing you to be able to execute any command and, and run things as an administrator on a machine remotely. Um, you had Log4j. I would argue this is one of the most dangerous vulnerabilities that we've had for quite some time. Uh, Log4j was, again, a, a remote code execution piece on machines. So hackers could execute code on your machine without them needing to be in front of it. Now, the reason this was so interesting is because with Print Nightmare, Microsoft released a patch to fix it because it was a Microsoft vulnerability. With Log4j, the Log4j developers, Log4j is essentially a logging tool that is totally open source that you can utilize and uh, it's inside of uh, Java, I believe. And essentially what happened was the, the Log4j guys, the, the, the guys who created it, released the patch really quickly, which is great. They, they fixed the issue quickly. But then what they're relying is that that patch is going to get pushed down to every single piece of software that is using the Log4j software. So this is where it gets really dangerous. And why I would say this is one of the, most, the more interesting attacks, because we're still seeing that Log4j is being utilized in attacks um, today, you know, where pieces of software have maybe not updated to that most recent version of uh, the Log4j patch. And then obviously, jumping forwards to, to most recently, both Log4j and Print Nightmare were obviously last year. Jumping forwards to June this year, we have the Felina vulnerability, allowing you to be able to run any executable on your local machine by just double-clicking on a Word document. And that wasn't even using macros. That was using a completely different method. So I think from a vulnerability standpoint, we are seeing more and more Without trying, without using the wrong words here, uh, it's a very interesting time to be in cybersecurity. Uh, and I'm not saying that from a, a standpoint of, yeah, this is great. We're seeing a ton of attacks. It's 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 very interesting to see how these attacks are going and and what is uh, what is happening there as well. Mm. Mm. And and you know th- those are some of the key problems and issues. But w- let, let's sort of pivot into the solutions. Um, I, I understand you're a big believer in zero trust. Could you just um, you know give our listeners a brief definition uh, of it, and then explain why more companies need to care about implementing it? Of course, of course. So uh, to me, I would say zero trust is essentially the idea of providing least privilege. Um, it's the, the easiest description that I can realistically give uh, to, to what Zero Trust is. Now, Zero Trust is not a new concept. Zero Trust came out in about 1990, uh, I think it was 91 or 94, something around there, the early 1990s. Um, it was part of a doctor, part of part of someone's thesis that they, they, they were actually writing. And um, that's kind of where the, the term was first coined. But realistically, it's something we've been doing for years. You know, it's at the end of the day, it is providing least privilege. You know, you don't go around and give everyone the keys to the front door of your house, do you? You know, you only give it to the people that need access. And, th- and that's kind of one of the, the easier ways to describe it. Now, uh, I, I like to be very clear when I talk about zero trust, there are a ton of zero trust solutions out there and they can each be 
brought in in a, in a, uh, a different way. You have networking, zero trust. You have computer, server level, zero trust. So zero trust is more than anything. It's, it's not necessarily a product. Uh, zero trust is a mindset. It is a way to be able to provide, I would argue, the next level of security to your networks. Now, the, the reason that I would say that is because if we look at uh, what we're using right now, in our networks for cybersecurity. Generally, we're using things like AVs and EDRs and MDRs and anti-spam and phishing and all that kind of stuff, right? And those are great solutions. I'm never going to say that we shouldn't use those. I think that'd be very foolish to say that you should never use those solutions. But I I also think at the, the end of the day, relying on those solutions alone is sadly not enough anymore. Uh, you know, we've we've been seeing again that increase in vulnerabilities that have been coming through. We've seen an increase in ransomware attacks year on year for pretty much the last ten years. So evidently, while these tools are great, they're not stopping everything. And I think that's realistically where a zero trust architecture can come in to be able to uh, actually help to solve that. Again, the idea of zero trust, least privilege, is. Uh, we coin it internally. We our our kind of tagline for it is allow what you need and block everything else. So yeah, that is very simply going to stop malware from running. It's going to stop unwanted apps from running. It's going to stop unknown apps from running. So I, I would argue that implementing zero trust is great alongside say an EDR as well. So you've got the advanced logging of an EDR. I think the old way of doing security and necessarily maybe the new way of doing security can still fit hand in hand together. Yeah, very, very, very well said. So, you know, not all companies are bringing it in. Is there any kind of, you know, big myths or misconceptions out there that's kind of like holding the, holding its uh, take up back a little bit? Yeah. I mean, there's always the, there's, there's always the one myth of zero trust is going to be a pain to set up. You know, so when we talk about zero trust, I, I um, we, we talk generally about uh, application allow listing. So again, allow what you need and block everything else. And um, the one thing I, I, I always hear here is, okay, this is either going to be an administrative burden or it's going to take me 10 years to be able to get this set up and working. And realistically, that's not necessarily true. It's, it, it, it's not always going to be like that. If we if we look back uh, five years ago at the, the zero trust tools that are out there, there, there were not as many, frankly. Um, zero trust was not a security solution that everyone was implementing because of that myth, um, because of the myth that, frankly, it was going to be a pain. And we've definitely seen, looking at cybersecurity over the last couple of years, there has been a, a, a huge resurgence of um, zero trust vendors and solutions out there that can help you to achieve zero trust security and a, a zero trust architecture without being a pain to manage, without being um, a ridiculously long deployment time, for example. So the solutions I would say that I have seen that are out there at this minute in time actually solve that myth that zero trust was a pain at any point to be able to go ahead and actually uh, deploy and set up. Yeah, so I think I think you've given like a really sort of good overview of the scape at the moment. Um, how does Threat Locker fit into all of this? Yeah, sure. So 
Threat Locker is essentially a five-piece system, the first of which is our allow listing. Now, it comes under a few different names. You have allow listing, default deny, deny by default, uh, whitelisting, that kind of stuff. And realistically, they are all the same thing. Different vendors and different providers like to go ahead and utilize the uh, different name. We call it allow listing internally. That's what we found works nicest with with the messaging that we, we try to explain. So allow listing is very simply allowing what you need and blocking everything else. It's sure, you're allowed to run Google Chrome and you're allowed to run uh, Microsoft Office to be able to, to do your work. But uh, further from there, you're not allowed to run Angry Birds. You can't run TeamViewer. You can't run any of those unknown applications that frankly, you shouldn't be running without the IT team at least even being aware or having approved manually. So allow listing is, again, without repeating myself over and over, allow what you need and it's block everything else. But once you have gone ahead and allowed what you need, you then need to limit what it can do. So for example, IT administrators use an application called PowerShell pretty much all day, every day. Uh, PowerShell is an incredibly powerful solution. You can manage um, whole networks of machines from it. You can use it to push out uh, updates, patch machines, turn on or off certain features. It is an incredibly powerful tool. And while it's great from an, a, from an admin standpoint, it is also at the same time incredibly dangerous because threat actors are using the PowerShell command set. They're using WScripts. They're using WMIC to be able to de- delete shadow copies. They're using the tools that we would allow by default against us. They're using these tools to be able to attack our systems. And you know, we've we've seen this time and time again. Part of the Irish HSE attack, they actually used um, PowerShell and WMIC to be able to delete shadow copies, so essentially backups of some files they had. We're, we're seeing these attacks go. I, I actually have a command that will call PowerShell, take a copy of your documents, and upload it to some Google Blob storage. Right now, that is again me utilizing a good tool against my IT administrator. Now, these kind of attacks do have a name, and they're called living off of the land. So, utilizing tools that already exist. And this is where threat lockers are ring fencing. So, our second component really comes in to be able to help. Uh, essentially, what we do is we say XYZ app is allowed to run, but it is not allowed to access X, Y, and Z, whether that be other files, the internet, etc. So, once we've gone ahead and we've allowed certain applications to be able to uh, run and then chosen what they can do, you then need to remove admin rights from users. It's very simple. Uh, we shouldn't trust users with admin credentials on their machines, right? Um, users do things they like write them down and stick them on post-it notes to their to their uh, to their computer screens. So we want to try and remove the danger of them doing things like that. So if you are able to remove admin rights from a user, there is then the inherent problem of, well, they may complain because they need admin rights to be able to open up a specific application or do something on their machine. Well, utilizing an elevation tool, which is part of what the, the third part of what ThreatLocker can do, we can allow you to be able to essentially say XYZ user is able to run XYZ application as an administrator. So individual application admin access. Next up is storage control. This one's very simple. Block or allow USBs based on certain criteria. You know, is it encrypted? Uh, does it hit certain uh, criteria levels? Does it? Uh, it's only allowed to take certain files o- over to the USB. Or, for example, 
you could only allow specific USBs based on their serial number. So you can be really granular of which USBs you want to allow to be able to run, as well as then locking down network and file and folder locations. Only allow specific access to these file and folder locations to specific applications, because when an app is installed on your machine, it has full access to everything that you have access to on your network. This is one of the first things that ransomware does. It looks for any NFS, SIFs, SMB shares, and it tries to overwrite their data because it knows if it can overwrite the data, you are more likely to pay. So why not lock down those locations so that only specific applications can access it and everything else is denied by default? And then ThreatLocker's newest solution, actually, um, our brand new solution is our network access control. Very simply, block all inbound access or control all inbound access to your machines and then allow access over specific ports based on certain set criteria. Maybe coming in, uh, maybe you want to only allow your remote desktop server to be able to access over 3389 through a couple of specific IP addresses. Or maybe you want to do it through a, a set keyword, so a secret key, for example. Or my favorite is allowing a subset of machines based on a group, maybe a workstations group you have set up, or allowed to access my servers group based on over 3389. So it's, it's, it's allowing you to have a fully configurable and easily manageable on endpoint firewall. So hopefully, hopefully that gives a, uh, a, a quick description on, on what ThreatLocker does. Now, how is it that we fit into this? We are a zero trust architecture solution. We follow the zero trust mindset. We are a deny by default, blocking everything unless it is explicitly needed. Mm. Yeah, I think I think one um, phrase that you uh, you've sort of you know said in the past is stop chasing, start defending, and I think that's a really good kind of mindset for a lot of other companies to adopt. Yes, a hundred percent. I think. We, as security professionals, uh, IT professionals out there, I mean, I myself am guilty of this from from when I I, I was managing security at a company. Uh, we often look at the, the new and shiny solutions that can save me from an attack because I've just been hit with that attack. Uh, you know, we are uh, chasing after the next best thing that is going to actually help. And realistically, these attacks are still happening. That is where zero trust can help. Zero trust is that baseline defense. Zero trust is the best way to protect yourselves against cybersecurity threats that are out there. Excellent, 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 excellent. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Ben. It was really, really great to get your insights into today's topic. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to everyone listening as well. We hope you took a lot away from today's podcast, but for further information on what we talked about, please head on over to threatlocker.com. We'll be back next week with another episode in our podcast series. But until then, make sure you subscribe to this podcast on all major platforms. Follow the conversation on our socials at EM360Tech on Twitter and LinkedIn. And for more great daily content, please head on over to EM360Tech.com. <laughs>